Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajajski, and this episode is a very special episode where illustrator and former podcast guest Hannah Ayub is turning the microphone on me to talk about my new book called Handmade, A Scientist's Search for Meaning Through Making, which is out on the 13th of May. Handmade is all about materials and making. About four years ago, I experienced this sort of crushing realisation that Although I knew all the scientific theories of materials on paper, like what makes steel really hard and strong or what makes glass transparent, I realised that I knew nothing really about what it feels like to forge orange hot steel in a blacksmith's workshop or blow up a bubble of molten glass with my breath. And so, you know, here I was supposed to be the expert in this stuff, but there was this huge gap in my knowledge, which was that of hand making. So four years ago, that was the impetus of this podcast, and it's also where the book begins. Not only in the book did I decide to talk to craftspeople, but I actually decided to get my hands dirty and go on a quest to meet the expert craftspeople who work with this stuff every day and have a go at their crafts in search for finding meaning through making. While I was writing the book, I kept noticing that these materials that I was writing about, these 10 materials, intersected with stories from my own life and elements of my identity as well. So it ended up becoming kind of an autobiography. Um, For example, the chapter on plastics tells the story of my Polish granddad, George, and how his life was shaped by and at times even saved by plastics. The chapter on clay is about how um, throwing clay on the potter's wheel saved me from depression. And the chapter on sugar is the story of the time that I attempted to swim the English Channel. So that's a bit of the context of what to expect from the book. And I asked Hannah to interview me because she made 12 wonderful illustrations for the book, which appear at the top of every chapter. And 
for Hannah, you know, as someone as comfortable in the lab as she is in her artist studio, I thought she was the perfect person to kind of really appreciate where the book sits at this confluence of art and craft and science. So Hannah started by asking me how I came to write a book. Well, actually, the book idea stemmed from this podcast. Um, mm -hmm. I've been doing the podcast since like early 2017, which is mad to think about now that we're in 2021. Um, and my original idea for it was to, you know, interview people who knew about materials from a different perspective from me. So as a person with a background in material science, I was very familiar with the theories and formulae and um, sort of the the graphs of what materials look like on paper. But I have no idea at all about kind of what they're like in the real world and um, how they feel and behave sort of under the hand, really. I just sort of knew what it was like theoretically. So the podcast stemmed from that feeling of... Um, inadequacy <laughs> um, and confusion um, and so I wanted to interview materials experts and that that was how the podcast was born and then in 2017 spring um, I went on a swimming holiday with a company called Swim Trek <laughs> um, and I met a woman called Laura McDougall and I was talking to her about my podcast and the stand-up comedy that I did about material science and she said oh I'm a literary agent would you like to come, would you like to write a book with me? So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, like I'd love, I love writing. Um, I'd love to sort of, yeah, think about writing a book. So then I worked with her on the book proposal and fast forward four years <laughs> later, now I've done a book. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, so let's rewind a little bit. Okay. So how, how long did it take to get from that sort of initial idea of writing a book mm. to sort of the actual idea for this book? Well, the actual idea for this book happened while I was writing this book. <laughs> okay. Throughout this whole process. Throughout this process, I've found out how to write a book, but because I didn't know how to do that initially, it all happened a bit re in reverse. So I I knew that I wanted to write about materials, obviously, because that's sort of my area of expertise. But I also knew that I wanted to not just write a, a straight up, quote unquote, popular science book where mm -hmm. I just write about the science and don't bring in any of the other interesting aspects of materials like making, but also like history and um sort of societal stuff as well um so I knew that much and in my listeners might not realize but when you want to write a book you have to write a book proposal which is sort of a, a relatively long document you have to say what chapters you're intending to write what the vet what the sort of headline of the book is about um you have to give a sample of your writing and in that proposal I sort of said well I'm going to write a chapter on 10 different materials these are some ideas for the materials. Actually, a lot of those changed in the in the end book. Um, and that was pretty much it. There wasn't really any sort of overall story arc or purpose mm -hmm. to the book other than I'm profiling these 10 materials. Um, and I think I said, I can't even remember in the book proposal whether I said I would actually go and meet makers and artists and craftspeople and have a go at their crafts. I think I probably did, but it, that wasn't really a sort of, main focus of it mm. and then when I was very lucky to get the deal and sort of sat down to start doing it um yeah I had I had this 
realization that actually it would be really nice to have some sort of narrative action going on. So I did go and meet a craftsperson or a few craftspeople for every chapter with each material. Mm. Um, some of which will be familiar to listeners on this podcast. Uh, we've got Agnes Jones from from very early on. She um, I spent time with her blacksmithing. Um, Darren Ellis, Ellie Doney, uh, Andrew Zeminski, or various others as well. Hello, this is Anna from the future. The full list of craft people featured in the book who have also appeared on this podcast is Charlie Murphy, Agnes Jones, Andy Taylor, Darren Ellis, Ellie Doney, Eleanor Schofield, Zofia Vizimerskanoga, and Andrew Zeminski. But that was still sort of quite a linear idea. When I wrote the book, I did every month I wrote one chapter basically. Mm-hmm. Um and so by the end of those twelve months, I had these ten chapters about materials. Um and then the really fun bit started, which was tr- to try and make it into a story and mm. into some sort of, to give it some purpose, basically. Otherwise, it would just be very repetitive, like, here's brass, now here's clay, now here's wood. <laughs> um, so I sort of sat down and I interrogated more my reason for writing the book and those those uncomfortable feelings like I said earlier, feeling inadequate, feeling like a bit of an imposter. I was supposedly this materials expert, but actually if you asked me to like throw a pot on the potter's wheel, I'd be useless. Mm. Or if, if you asked me a question about wood, I don't know anything about wood. Like we don't even study that in material science. Wood's quite an important material. It turns out Mm -hmm. for, for society and for, for makers. Um, So I really interrogated these feelings of inadequacy and where they came from. Um, and that meant that I was, I then became this protagonist in this story because no longer was it, was the focus on these 10 different materials, but the focus was on me. And and this was the point where I actually settled on the title as well. And a scientist mm-hmm. search for meaning through making, because the, the, the protagonist holds the reader's hand through this journey. Um, so by, yeah. So at the beginning of the book, we sort of meet me, the character, um, Oh yeah, while I was writing it, I had to sort of make myself as a character, which was quite funny because uh, I needed to sort of examine my own mostly character flaws <laughs> to make a believable mm-hmm. character, um, which was quite an interesting sort of... Uh... Which I think you have achieved sort of oh, very good. well. <laughs> you, you know, the, I think the sort of autobi- the autobiographical side of the book is absolutely lovely and really sort of draws you in and connects you to it um and you know it it is a characterized version of you but I still think it's it is very you like you do come through in the book and that's really lovely oh good definitely isn't true of science books you know on the whole even popular science books yeah definitely I mean you know Mm. as scientists we're so conditioned to write ourselves out of our work right Mm. Mm -hmm. the experiment was done Mm. (laughs) um so I really wanted to to get away from that and to put some character into it so I'm really glad that comes across it's always tempting I think when you write autobiography to just write yourself as this like really cool (laughs) like well put together (laughs) person but actually that's not interesting for readers they want to see the cracks so um, yeah, I think yeah, it's, there's, what there's quite a few more, it's what makes people more likable, isn't it? And Definitely, yeah, I think and it's, relatable. It's absolutely delightful. I mean, I, I had someone say to me recently, you know, you, you do have to realise you don't have to put yourself into your writing. And I was sort of, well, then why am I writing? Mm, you agree. know, if it's not at least 
if I'm not placing myself in the writing, if I'm not bringing some of me to the reader, then why am I writing it? What's why the isn't point someone in... else writing exactly, it? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to sell a book to a publisher, a big question is why you? Why are you the mm-hmm. person to write this? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that I think you're the perfect person to have written this book. I think there's, we've, we've talked about, you know, the interviews, the sort of meeting these craftspeople, these characters, your sort of personal story. And then also, of course, the science that's in it as well. And I think mm-hmm. bringing all of those threads together has created a really beautiful story with, with lots of science and making in there. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's really nice. <laughs> um. So you've mentioned that there are some people um, in the book that podcast listeners will be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to say anything more about those sort of episodes or those materials that people will see in the book? Yeah. So some of the interviews, the interviews that you'll hear on the podcast most recently were ones that I did alongside writing the book, uh, which was mostly done in 2019. So with with the early ones like Agnes Jones and Darren Ellis, I'd interviewed them on the podcast already. And so when mm. I was writing the book and wanting to reach out to makers, um, they they were great people because I already knew that they would be sort of, they, we were already sort of pals. So um, it was really nice actually it, with the Agnes Jones example. She was an early interviewee on the podcast and then I reached out to her and went up to visit her in Glasgow at her studio. And it was a lovely, it was a lovely experience to spend another day with her and really sort of watch her um, at work, watch her in her sort of natural habitat of her forge mm-hmm. and um, yeah, have a go myself, which was probably, it, I'd say blacksmithing is probably one of the most dramatic crafts that I tried <laughs> of all of the ones that I did. Um, very, very dark. The, the space has to be kept very dark so that you can see the colour of the steel, mm-hmm. but then also like really loud and very hot quite sort of scary at times because there's this like red glowing hot metal around flinging bits of like hammer scale off at you every time you hit it and really tiring (laughs) as well like I thought I'd be quite well (laughs) I had a grandiose idea that I thought I'd be relatively good at blacksmithing because I I like to think that I've got quite good upper body strength but actually it's all in the technique and I was very rubbish Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) um I mean, you talked about sort of, you know, showing your flaws as a character. And I think those stories of you actually getting to make things and learning from the craftspeople really brings that out because you are showing sort of the the inadequacy or the sort of, you know, you're learning something. And that's such a journey for a reader to join you on and, you know, for you to be really honest about. Um, Yeah. And actually, that was important to me because I think a lot of popular science books are written generally by people at, towards the top of their game, not exclusively. There are lots of brilliant younger writers coming through, but traditionally it's people, you know, at the top of their careers, they're the knowledge holders and they are disseminating this knowledge to us, the lowly public, right? So there's this sort of hierarchy of expert and non-expert and knowledge flow going sort of downhill that way. Whereas with this book, I wanted to be on the side of the reader. Like, I don't know anything about blacksmithing either. <laughs> Let's learn together. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that for me was an important distinction to kind of be at the naive end and be having these experiences new. Mm-hmm. Do you have any sort of favourite making experiences that you covered in the book? You mentioned blacksmithing, but mm-hmm. were there any others? Oh, my gosh, so many. Um <laughs> Glass blowing was phenomenal. I'd never really 
I'd never had a chance to sort of soften glass and mm. work with it, but it's such a weird material because it's not crystalline. It doesn't have a distinct melting temperature like ice does or, or actually any metals. Um, it's sort of, as you heat it, it just becomes softer and softer and softer until it becomes liquid enough for you to be able to sort of move it around and manipulate it. And mm -hmm. as I was... As I was having a go, actually, Charlie Murphy is another guest on this podcast who I worked with with glass for the book. Um, as I was heating this glass, you could sort of feel it start to give under your hands, but nothing visual changes with the material as well. So it's really weird. You sort of just have to feel it. Just mm. go by, just go by what you can feel and the sort of resistance of the material. Um, and sometimes you heat it too fast and then it goes way too liquid and then yeah. it all happens really quickly. <laughs> it like flops off onto the floor or mm. something. But um, that was a really, that was exactly what I was trying to get at with the book was this sort of feeling of literally hands-on, but also yeah. experiencing the material from a using a different sense, using the sense mm -hmm. of touch and feeling. Um, yeah. So yeah, that that was a really really special experience that's it's really interesting to hear that because I've I'd say I've always been a crafter and worked with loads of different materials and mm. to me that you know that's unsurprising this idea that you do feel your material you predict things you sometimes can't quite explain what's going on but you know something's about to snap or you know that right. something's just right um, you mentioned about glass sort of not being a crystalline material. So I'm just going to pick up on that. Can you explain for <laughs> anyone who doesn't know what that means? Of course. So let's get into the material science of this. <laughs> um, so, well, firstly, you know, all materials are made of atoms. Um, and the way that material scientists think of materials is they like to imagine what those atoms are up to inside and how they arrange themselves. Um, in lots of materials like metals and ice, the atoms line up in a very sort of regimented structure. Um, so if you can imagine sort of like a 3D grid of of all these atoms, um, which I usually think of as sort of like little balls. Mm -hmm. um, so if you imagine like, yeah, a whole load of marbles or maybe Maltesers sort of stacked up in a really neat rows and columns in a sort of 3D structure. Mm -hmm. We describe that as a crystal structure in material science. Um, so crystalline materials have these very ordered and regimented atoms. And that's what gives them a melting temperature because when you heat these materials, the bonds between the atoms are all the same strength. They all have the same relationships between each other. Mm -hmm. So when you heat the material and the bonds break, that is what causes the material to go from a solid material to a liquid. With glass, there are no rows and columns of atoms there are no sort of there's no order to it really um although strictly speaking material scientists would say that there's short range order but we'll forget about that um <laughs> so in glass what you have is these quite big silica molecules um and they arrange themselves in a very chaotic and disordered way um and the result of that is that there are there is no one particular temperature which can break those bonds so, because they're all different. And so mm -hmm. what you end up with is a range over a temperature range, those bonds start to become broken. And as more and more bonds are broken, the material becomes more and more liquid. Um, but there is no one distinct, this glass melts at 100 mm -hmm. degrees or 1,000 degrees or whatever. Interesting. So we've talked a bit about this sort of divide between science and crafting, you know, the sort of the making versus sort of the, you know, the graphs on paper. <laughs> 
are you hoping that the book will help people to see more of these connections? Definitely. Because, you know, as I was going through the process of learning about all these crafts, I was making all these scientific connections. For example, in the chapter about wool, I went to a wool dyeing workshop um, at the wool kitchen um, and the London loom up in Hackney. And we were doing acid dyeing, which is sort of the one of the most common ways of dyeing wool. And what happens in acid dyeing is you have these dye molecules and when you put them in water, they split into a positively charged bit and a negatively charged bit. And I can't remember which way around it is now, but one of those is the bit that holds the colour. And that's the one that ends up being attracted to the to the strands in the wool. Um, and so there's chemistry behind that. And yet that is a really sort of traditional crafting technique. Mm. Um, and again, with blacksmithing as well, you know, I I understood the the science behind incandescence and why materials glow when they get hot. That's all to do with quantum mechanics and electromagnetics. But to see it and for mm. Agnes to say, right, that's at 1500 degrees now because it's glowing orange. Let's get it out of the forge yeah. and start hitting it. Um, those kinds of connections is what I wanted to to bring and, and to sort of show readers that these are just two ways of thinking about the same stuff, you know, mm-hmm. literally stuff, materials, but also kind of the same ideas and um, and history and and objects and all of this sort of stuff. So, yeah, I suppose I wanted to to show that it's just different perspectives, but in doing that, hopefully, if people are coming at this from more of the scientific side, then it will give them the confidence to think maybe I can enter the world of craft and likewise if people are coming at this who tend to identify as artists then hopefully it'll lower the barriers to entry of thinking about materials scientifically and interrogating the processes that they experience as they're doing their artistic practice Mm. i guess the when we're talking about this science and art sort of you know divide as well i think we quite often get people who are sort of one or the other, but also people who are neither. And I think Mm. the nice thing about making and the topics you're covering, so things like wood and blacksmithing and wool, these are actually materials that everyone's going to have some familiarity with. You know, this isn't sort of high art. This is literally the art that makes the things we all use. And I think that sort of even more sort of breaking down barriers, I think, and boundaries between things. Yeah, definitely. And the other element of this all is that, you know, you mentioned this earlier that um, it's a very autobiographical book. Mm. And I think what I wanted to highlight was that these materials have sort of intersected with various elements of my life and areas of my identity. Um, And my hope is that readers will identify how materials have done that in their lives too. So it's Mm -hmm. not just about whether it's, you know, we think about this as a scientist or an artist, but actually as a person and a, a, a human going about the world. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I really love that idea. I think there's especially, you know, reading about sugar and I think also reading about wood because it's a material I've worked with more. I definitely felt that connection and thinking about, you know, handling objects you're making, but also handling finished objects, you know, treasured things that are sort of part of your family mm. or something that you've been given by someone else. I think there's, I mean, you know, we, you sort of refer to it as stuff, but, the, you know, the stuff around us tends mm. to be quite important to us. Definitely. Yeah. How how did the sort of craftspeople that you worked with, how, like, what did they think about this idea, sort of talking about the science within it or, you know, having this material scientist who'd never touched these materials before sort of coming into their studios and workplaces? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I think it's quite, it was quite varied, to be honest. Mm. Um, I think there's always, I'm always a bit wary of, sort of outing myself as a material scientist because I think it does put barriers up with, yeah. you know, people from certain sort of expertise. So I didn't want them to feel like I was being at the worst judgmental, but at, at the very least sort of... Um, that I wasn't coming at this from like a place of just complete openness and wanting to learn... Um, and from a place of complete naivety. Um, mm. Like I didn't want to think that I was, you know, taking notes for any sort of like scientific reason. Um, so I think there was an element of having to gain trust between us. Mm -hmm. um, and once they saw how crap I was at making stuff, then they were fine. <laughs> they were like, oh, here's a complete beginner idiot. <laughs> <laughs> now I know where to put her. <laughs> Aww. Um, but yeah, no, no, in general, I think um, the majority of the makers that I met and spent time with, um, they are fascinated by the scientific elements and the crossovers and wanting to hear about, just as I am, how, how the other side thinks in a way. Um, and, you know, identifying the scientific elements of, um, of the crafts that they do. Yeah. yeah. 
um, I think you, that trust really comes through in the book as well. And I know, I know you're the sort of narrator, but you do mm. also get this sense of the other people in the book and some of their personalities and their sort of, you know, we talked about sort of full rounded characters, but the bits that they love about what they do, the bits they might not, mm. you know, love as much. And that really does um come through i think one of my favorites is in the stone chapter because you literally go on a bit of a journey with um the, the person who's the maker whose name i've completely forgotten andrew zeminski okay but <laughs> yeah. you know you sort of start off with the sort of um the sort of conserving a monument and then you mm. go on a drive and you go to his work, workplace it's a really nice sort of multi-part sort of journey in that one yeah oh thanks it's funny actually some of the a lot of the descriptions that have been coming in in the sort of marketing side of the book, have said it's a science book slash memoir slash travel log. Like they're really emphasising the travel aspect, which I didn't really think about. Um, but I suppose, yeah, there is there is quite an element of travel. And I do, I do travel the country to meet these people, you mm. know, up to Glasgow to see Agnes, to the West Country with Andrew. Um, I go to Norfolk to meet uh, Andy Taylor, the trumpet maker, um, so yeah, it has been endorse it as well for the Iron Port. So it has been yeah. all around the country. Um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> and, and you do talk about those journeys, and I think you talk about where you are and what the weather's like in some cases. So yeah. I can see that travel side. Like I felt like I was going on a bit of a journey around the UK whilst reading the book. Oh, um, good. Especially during you know lockdown when I haven't left London for a year. <laughs> so well, it was really that. nice. Yeah. That is one concern with the book actually is that it's very much obviously written and set in 2019 because <laughs> mm, there's mm. going on trains and shaking hands and touching the same clay <laughs> all of uh, which is banned now so <laughs> yeah um I, I don't know I think that that ad, I would hope that adds a bit of a sort of escapist mm. angle to it I mean definitely I've started reading a lot more over the last few months and it's felt like a really nice way to get out of this feeling of you know being trapped in the same place mm. and be able to see different worlds and different places and yeah. sort of meet new people in a way through pages so I think same that, here. Yeah. yeah and actually it's funny when I wrote the first version of the stone chapter I wrote that one last in mm. pretty much February March 2020 and and one of the first version of the chapter was um it was quite bad tempered because I was writing it during the very beginning of the lockdown and it was also I wrote in covid into that chapter mm. you know i'm sitting on the train and i see a thing fl flash up on my phone and it's the first six deaths from covid in the uk and stuff um so there's that sort of like element of jeopardy and sort of uh uncomfortableness mm. and the reason i wrote that initially was because for me stone is quite an uncomfortable material because i'm very scared of heights and the chapter opens with me going up st paul's cathedral and discovering this um and so mistrusting stone but i i ended up taking that covid element out because um a, it dated the book in time, um, but also I think, like you say, we don't really want to keep being reminded of this stuff. Yeah. Um, especially with a year on now, like the majority of people are relatively sick of it. Um, so, yeah, I wanted it to kind of stand alone and not mm. be too bogged down in, in the Yeah, yeah I, I remember reading the first version of that chapter and mm. it was uncomfortable and yeah. I think at, at the time it felt right exactly but I think I'm quite glad that you sort of changed it to Same. a sort of um a different version I think especially because it's at the end of the book yeah it's sort of nice not to end on a downer and sort of pick up a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. pick up a bit um <laughs> anything we haven't spoken about that you'd like to cover one of the things 
and it's difficult for me to know whether I'm just saying this retrospectively, but no, I think it was there from the beginning, was that I wanted to write a... I wrote the science book... No, I wrote the book that I couldn't see in the popular science field. Nowhere have I ever seen a popular science book written by someone like me, whom I really related to. Um, So that was a real reason a real driver for me bringing so much of the personal elements into the book as well is that I wanted to paint a full picture of what it means to be or what it is possible to be a scientist as really so you know yes I'm interested in material science but I also really love the trumpet and swimming um and I like going on adventures in my camper van (laughs) um and all these other things I'm really really passionate about um other elements of my identity like the story of my Polish granddad in the plastics chapter um the sort of family history side the sexuality side I just wanted to form a an image of a human who happens to be a scientist I think it really does come across that you are a fully rounded person. I mean, we, you know, we talked about sort of character flaws, but quite often, even the science books that are a bit autobiographical, they're very much about the person as a scientist or the person Mm. as an engineer. And I, I mean, personally, I want to read about someone who likes swimming and goes camping and, you know, I want to know what their favourite sweets are and, you know, the fact that they are slightly obsessed with the weather um, wherever they're (laughs) travelling to. That's hilarious. Um, I had not picked that up. (laughs) I mean, it's just a British thing, right? (laughs) Or maybe I'm just trying to reach the word count. Who can say? Who knows? Um, But you really do get this sense of this, you know, this person who's interested in her family history, Mm. who's yeah, love so it all. It's it's a really nice sort of rich sort of experience that you get to go on in the book, and that's oh, really good. I think its biggest strength. The other thing, the other thing about that is that I didn't want the science to be the the central narrative to the book, which I think is mm. what so many popular science books are, because that makes sense as to why they would be like that. But what I wanted to do was, I assumed. My key assumption when starting was that nobody is interested in material science, nor should they be, right? Unless you're paid to do it, like I have been. Um, nobody, Science isn't inherently interesting, in my opinion. What's interesting is the repercussions of it um, and how it like actually manifests in the real world and how that affects our lives. So I didn't want the central narrative to be, this is glass, here's the history of glass, here's the science of glass. I wanted the central narrative to be, I'm a scientist. This is how glass has impacted my life as a scientist. Um, and ditto with, you know, all of the other chapters. Um, so the central spine of every chapter is a non-scientific story. And then we hook on the science and and the other sort of historical anecdotes as we go. But mm-hmm. I just didn't... For me, that that driving narrative is what makes it... is what keeps it going um, mm-hmm. and keeps a reader's interest... Whereas I just don't think science is interesting enough to be able to do that on its own. <laughs> I mean, you laugh, but I think we we both share this thing that we're a bit irreverent about science. We sure. tend to be quite honest that it's not our entire lives. You know, we have other hobbies, we have other things we're interested in. And for me, a lot, like I genuinely struggle to read some popular science books mm. because it's rammed full of science. I don't remember most of it 
right after I've read it, you know. Yeah. And actually, I much prefer to read books with a little bit less science, a bit more story and humanity. And then I tend yeah. to remember far more of the science that I've read in the book. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. During the writing process, there were, there were definitely bits where I culled a whole load of science because it wasn't, it wasn't relevant to the story. It wasn't answering any question in the story. The mm-hmm. only science in the book enhances the non-scientific stories. If it's just a, here's an interesting thing, then it's cut because it doesn't matter. <laughs> Yeah. I think what's interesting as well is you mentioned about not seeing yourself in any other science books. And I just saying that about wanting books with less science and more story, I'm actually, I've noticed that a lot of, you know, traditionally underrepresented science writers seem to be the ones who do write those books that I personally Mm. find sort of richer and more autobiographical and more interesting. And I think that I really hope that that's sort of a trend that keeps continuing and we keep seeing sort of more of these stories that sort of intersect with science. Oh, me too. Yeah, I can't wait to read those. Yeah. <laughs> um, can we talk about illustrations now? Yes, we can talk about illustrations. So the reason why I've read Anna's book, including earlier versions of chapters, is that I did the chapter illustrations yeah. for the book. Yeah. And... Um, they honestly I think one of as a collective one of the favorite things I have ever produced in my career like I say that I actually start to tear up a bit because it was (laughs) such an enjoyable thing to work on oh good that's really touching to me because it was really important to me to be able to promote and celebrate as many of as many as much work of the people around me that I admire and enjoy as possible so it was I was so thrilled that you were able to do it and I'd really love to hear from you because I've not actually asked you this what was your approach to it I guess you know because I I just handed you this 200 page manuscript (laughs) (laughs) here you go Um, be artistic so (laughs) (laughs) um so I get so the interesting thing that I sort of discovered around the time that you handed me um, the manuscript was that it isn't normal for illustrators to read the books that they're illustrating. What? If it's if it's sort of you know a full length sort of book aimed at adults, quite oh. often they're just given you know a obviously with children's books it's different, but mm. it's quite normal for illustrators to just be given a list of illustrations, maybe to have a chat with you know the publisher and um, the writer, but then to go with it. Whereas in a way, I guess, because I knew you <laughs> before um, I was brought on board, I knew I was going to read the whole book because I wanted to read it anyway. And so I think my approach started by, I remember I pretty much cycled up the road to um, a park, lay out in the sun and like read half the half the book. Oh, um, amazing. And then I think did the same in the garden the next day. Um, <laughs> and those sort of themes that we've been talking about already so you know the sort of hands-on making but with that sprinkle of science plus the life story and you know the you in it all really came through um and so then as we started to discuss what the individual illustrations would be those were the things that I wanted to be sort of at the core of them so I think with every illustration in the book, there's a picture that it's, you know, meant to be of. But then in a slightly sort of abstract way, it's then sort of bringing in lots of hidden scientific elements, lots of 
things related to you and your life in the book as well. And I've been looking back at the illustrations today, actually, um, knowing that we were going to be chatting. And it's it's really nice to actually like look back and be like, yeah, I think I did that. I think I did bring all those elements together mm. in almost every one of these pictures. Definitely. And it's what made you such a perfect candidate for, for doing these illustrations is because you know before this project your work was already bringing in all of those sort of different elements you know you that that was sort of your or how I saw it anyway was one of your sort of key USPs was that you you drew these illustrations that brought in elements of your identity actually and your Mm -hmm. scientific background and artistic background and um interest in pattern and symmetry but also biology and um there's lots of animals that you've done before. So, I mean, it was just a, for me, it was a perfect sort of stepping stone into sort of the world of material science and making. Yeah. Um, I think the fact, I feel like we both sort of work in this sort of area of overlap between Mm. sort of science and art and making. And it really felt that sort of, we could sort of work in parallel in a way on this. Um, And being able to bring all those things together was really nice. And I really like that the illustrations will be able to work on multiple levels. So, you know, I don't think you need to get every reference or, you know, every pattern that's actually being being inspired by a crystal structure uh, (laughs) to be able to appreciate them. But I also hope that there are going to be little things in there that other people do notice. So, for example, in the picture that accompanies the chapter on... um, is it the chapter on steel with blacksmithing or yep. is that a different yeah yeah um you know the sort of the piece of metal that's being hammered the pattern changes with the temperature mm. you know along um that piece of metal and there's other little things like you know the jelly babies have sort of a um pattern on them that's inspired by the structure of different sugars yeah. and i hope that f- you know some people might go back and see those patterns as they read through the book and I hope that you know for some of maybe the sciencier people out there they might pick them up the first time that they see the pictures definitely I was just going to say that actually I think because the chapters appear at the top of sorry the illustrations mm. appear at the top of every chapter and then you sort of read the chapter so I would definitely be tempted to then flick back and see like oh that there's a polymer molecule or <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in that plane's wing. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favourite out of all the illustrations? Oh my Can gosh, that's one? such a hard question. The sugar one makes me laugh every time because you've done my crew. So for listeners, the sugar chapter um, is a, the story of my English channel swim. And so the illustration is a little me and then some waves, um, which is a nod to the thing that we make in the chapter. And then there's a boat with two jelly babies on it, which are my crew members. And it just makes me smile every time that like <laughs> you've made my friends into jelly babies. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's particularly relevant given that they were handing you jelly babies. It's true. I mean, it's true. It's yeah. perfect. Um, so that um, one really makes me smile. But um, I, I love, I, I do love the the blacksmithing one because it's so, or the steel chapter one because it's so visceral and the fire is beautiful and the patterns are, are fantastic. And then the ones at the start and the end, the prologue and the epilogue ones, where we see these sort of wall of objects. In the prologue, you're sort of foreshadowing us with what we might meet in the book. And mm. then the epilogue is basically 
I could have just not written an epilogue and just had your illustration because that, that is it. <laughs> <laughs> that sums it up brilliantly. <laughs> Please do still read the epilogue. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, they're, they're all just so fantastic in their own way. Um, and, yeah, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to our listeners being able to see them. Brilliant. Um, I think I think the sugar one's probably amongst my favourites, but my <laughs> my other favourite is the wool um, yeah. sort of illustration as well, where there's almost sections. So it's a picture of someone sort of knitting, but it zooms into sort of different, I guess, levels of the structure of wool. Um, mm. And as sort of a biologist who's also um, sort of crafted with wool, I really didn't know how complex a material it is until I started on that mm. illustration. And I absolutely love looking at it. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Wool is, is just the most mind blowing material ever. Like the way that it's got the, all these hierarchies of structure all made mm. up of, um, I mean, atoms at their most fundamental, but there's like several, several different layers of structures mm. out of structures out of structures. And yeah, it blows my mind every time. And the fact that you were able to translate that into <laughs> like a beautiful <laughs> illustration is just incredible. I, yeah, it's, I think as a zoologist as well, it's just this thing that, you know, sort of natural selection and evolution has just produced this amazing yeah. material that was originally just to keep an animal warm. <laughs> know, and right? then we've sort of transformed it into something else. <laughs> yeah. So what are your hopes for, you know, the next few months or longer as this book goes out into the big wide world? Oh, I'm so excited for people to read it. Um, it's also very scary because it is so autobiographical and people will mm. learn my deepest, darkest, worst traits. But um, I think, like we said, this is a book that I don't think there are many like this um, in terms of it being written by someone that, um, by a voice that isn't traditionally represented in popular science writing. So if there is someone who reads this and feels more confident to become interested in science or become interested in craft it works both ways equally um then that'll be a really good result um you know if if there's a younger person who is maybe feeling unsure about where they fit in in the world um be that because of their sexuality or their interests or you know their their quirks that they see in themselves if this book can give them the confidence that um that they can exist and succeed then then to me that is good that's a re reason for doing it as well so I just yeah I hope that it touches people and I hope that they um I hope that they let me know because otherwise <laughs> I will just be sitting here alone like I have been for a year writing this book <laughs> um because it's funny when you when you do the sort of you know the comedy and the talks and stuff there's a lot of immediate feedback and dialogue between the audience whereas with a book it's very far removed mm. so yeah i i would really love to hear from people who have read it and what they think about it good and bad um and yeah i just i just hope that it touches people in in ways that i probably can't even anticipate as well so that was the wonderful Hannah Ayub interviewing me about my book, Handmade, A Scientist's Search for Meaning Through Making, which is out on the 13th of May. You can order hardback and Kindle copies of Handmade online, and there's also an audiobook version. So if that's more your thing, then you can listen to this voice for many, many hours telling stories about materials. 
that's everything for this episode as always it would be awesome if you could like and subscribe to the podcast and review it on apple podcast if you want to keep up to date with everything that's going on via social media we're on twitter at real talk that's r-i-a-l talk and on instagram at handmade pod if you'd like to support with a one-time financial donation you can do so at supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade a huge thanks as always to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix and a shout out to our second great rebranding of the podcast, which is now rebranded to more closely align with the front of the book. That's all for this special episode. Next week, I'll be talking to woodworker and all round craftsperson extraordinaire Daniel Dernan about his life in craft. So until then, take very good care and I'll speak to you next time on Handmade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.